Let us bow our heads again this morning. Oh, God, God, all majestic as you are, we know not how the Spirit moves, convicting men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. And it is that Spirit, and now we call upon pleading as beggars to open our eyes as we open this word this morning as we come face to face with Jesus Christ and his demands righteous demands and testing and shifting open our eyes we pray open our hearts open our ears to hear this morning your call may you be lord with my mouth meditation of my heart to be acceptable and pleasing to you and work for your glory in jesus precious name amen maybe true friend that there are two sides to every question just as it is also true that there are two sides to a sheet of fly paper. And it makes a big difference to the fly which sides he chooses. One side sticks, the other side doesn't. Friends, in many ways, this morning we come to such kind of crossroads. We must decide whether we turn away to the world or we stick to Jesus Christ. And whether we stick around with Jesus Christ or not depends all from the priorities we have in our hearts, in our mind, in our worldview. Either we prioritize comfort, either we prioritize easiness, Either we prioritize selfish desires and therefore we go back to the world or we value God's word no matter what it costs to us personally. We either say, I'm going back or like Peter and the 12th, we say, to whom shall we go? We conclude today John chapter 6. We are continuing that series of the public ministry of Jesus. He has done several miracles to, remember, authenticate his ministry. He is now in Jerusalem. There are several Jewish festivals there around the temple. But remember what had happened in chapter 5. That Jesus had gone public with his ministry. But his going public had started a series of rejection. The conflict between the true believers and the world is heightening and growing all the way to the end of the Gospel of John. More and more, the unbelief is mounting in the Gospel all the way to chapter 12 where Jesus ends his public ministry. And he starts to have this time with the disciples. You remember a few Sundays ago we saw that he multiplied the bread, right? For 5,000 people. And he had claimed last Sunday, you remember, 
providentially through our communion sermon, I am the bread of life. That was lots of verses. Now we slow down, we put the brakes, and we focus on this shorter ending to the sermon. There is uh, Jesus is that wonderful word of life that we saw last Sunday. But remember the central stumbling block last, last time was the sacrifice involved in that word of life. And also the fact that Jesus all the way to chapter 5 to now is claiming to be God. And that doesn't fit to the mindset of the Jews. And among the critics we have mixed responses today to the sermon that Jesus gave to us last Sunday. A long sermon in the synagogue, remember, in Capernaum. Many are offended to Jesus' sermon. Many are turned off by his message. We could call these few verses at the end of chapter 6 the crisis moment for the disciples. The crisis moment for, we could think, of Jesus' ministry. I mean, think about it. This is already two years probably that Jesus has been ministering, okay? And all these people have followed Jesus for two years, okay? And now they begin to struggle for what it means, what it entails to follow Jesus Christ. Few, only 12 disciples stick with Jesus. Among this great crowd that had followed him, that had witnessed all the miracles. And among them we see here Peter seems the center. All the gospel speaks of expounding the full confession of faith of Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know those words. And we also know from other gospel the commendation of Jesus toward his confession. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. But compared to the other gospel, the focus here is not so much the identity of Jesus... But more the personal loyalty to Jesus from the true disciples. And what John wants you to see is the sharp contrast of that loyalty. Of these few, 12, 11 at that. And the countless false disciples in the crowd. Who by this moment desert Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? Imagine the conversation among the 12 disciples after this point. Hey, do you remember so and so? He used to come with us and follow Jesus for two years. And now he's gone. And in the midst of such loss, there's one detail that is to me shocking and paradoxically encouraging, okay? And the detail is this. Jesus is not bothered at all, even one bit, that all these crowds leave him. They're gone. What does that teach us? A great lessons for us as Theta Baptist Church, I hope that we too will see people coming and going, joining and leaving, and at times remaining even fewer and fewer. And all this reveals to us that we should expect true discipleship to be something rare and little, and that that should not discourage us. In fact, what does it teach us is this. That the difference between a fan and a follower of Jesus Christ lies in this. That you realize His person and His message are worth whatever the cost. That is the difference between a true follower of Christ and all this crowd of fans. And the few in the crowd here want to count the cost of following Jesus. 
And what, what we see here is the tragedy that the majority of these people goes back to the world. That is for us the first part of these verses, verse 60 to 66. That the fans, the fake fans who are fakely following Jesus, leave Jesus. As soon as they realize that there is a cost in following Jesus. And why is the reason? Because the gospel offends them. Verse 60 starts with a therefore. Which means we are here at the end of Jesus' sermon. Probably has come out of the stairs of the synagogue in, in Capernaum. He had talked about the bread of life, you remember last Sunday. But many of his so-called disciples here, these crowds that are taken upon themselves, the name Christian, up until now the twelve and the crowds look exactly alike. But after hearing the speech and the sermon of Jesus, they react badly. What do they say there in verse 60? Oh, this is a hard saying. This is a difficult statement. It literally means that it's harsh, unpleasant, because there is an exacting and trying nature, a demanding dimension in Jesus' words, okay? These crowds are realizing that there is a cost in following Jesus Christ. It is too high of a standard for us. Almost intolerable. I mean, remember, he had told them, if you don't eat my flesh, if you don't drink my blood, you have no life. No eternal life. It was as telling them that you now go and you uh, be killed with me. You come and follow me and take the sacrifice. I mean, who can understand it? Who can be able to hear this or listen to this? That there's a dimension of what Jesus says that obviously is unclear. But the real problem is not unclarity here, okay? The real problem is this. Jesus' words are hard to accept. They're unpopular. They are unpopular. The demand of following Jesus is too hard to bear. Who can accept what Jesus just said to us? Who can be expected to listen to such stuff? And, and it doesn't mean just understanding what Jesus has meant, which is, was already hard, okay? You remember the double meaning between bread and life. You remember the graphic words like flesh and blood. But the bigger problem of this crowd is they cannot digest it. It is hard to process it, to obey it. It's a bread that is too tough to swallow. It was more than their empty belly in need of a cracker could stomach. It is all nice and well to follow Jesus. You, you want to jump in the Christian wagon and until someone mentions to you that there is an actual cost of following Jesus Christ, that it will cost you everything. Until you are face to face with the demands of God's word from your life. Until you realize you have to trust the Lord completely. And not in part. Not just when it's convenient to you. Not just when you get some benefit from it. And then you, be, you begin to see the difference between a true follower of Jesus Christ and a fake Christian. And they say, this, oh this is too much for me to handle. And then they say, oh I, I don't like this message. I don't like, it's, it sounds harsh. And, uh, and then they start saying, oh, this is legalistic. Or I, I don't like this person. I don't like this church. I don't like this thing. They show by such words, our self-seeking, they really are. And then the excuses begin. Oh, I, I'm too busy to come to church. 
I, I gotta focus on this and that and you know it's too much for me and how does verse 61 continues the text says Jesus knew within himself okay he knew all about this he was aware without them vocalizing that mind you Jesus know all of your thoughts okay he, he knows all your real intention that yes people can fool man but not Jesus Christ and he knows that these, these so-called disciples are murmuring and complaining or grumbling or protesting within themselves. They're having a hard time with Jesus' message here again. And so Jesus is aware of that and he tells them, does this offend you? Does this offend you all? I mean, we already saw last spring, if you were here with us, I came to visit and we went through the, the parable of the sower in Matthew. Remember that? And what did we see there? What happens to seed grows among rocks, particular. That they rejoice for a season. But then the, the, the sun heats and then they, they dry up. Why? Because they have no roots. And, and the interpretation that Jesus gave there was that when persecution, when the, when, the, when, the, when the cost of discipleship shows up, they immediately stumble. Friends, this is the same word here. Jesus is telling them, does this offend you? Just like that, that seed that is, doesn't have roots. That stumble and falls at the, at the suffering that is entailed in following Christ. Friends, may this be a reminder for us again in the future. As we will face all sort of people that come and go and they dare, that the gospel is not taking root. A seed of the word. And elsewhere Jesus declares also in this matter of offending. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Matthew eleven six. Jesus is asking the crowd, does my saying causes you to stumble? That you are now angry and in shock, disturbed by the graphic language that last time Jesus gave them. You must eat my flesh. You must drink my blood. Verse 53. And they had already complained before that, interrupting the sermon of Jesus, that, uh, oh, how can these men give us bread from heaven, right? So they're literally scandalized. That's what this word means. They're upset. The message causes them to doubt. To no longer believe or trust the truth that they claim to follow. What Jesus just said to them makes them want to give up listening to Jesus. Jesus' message made them aware that they will be a cost in following. And they did not want to have anything to do with it. That yes, Jesus' person and message was offensive to these crowds. Just like it is offensive to people in the 21st century. Many stumble when they hear this or that aspect of the biblical message. That conflicts with their sin. That conflicts with their need of turning away and forsaking their sin. When, when the Bible implies correction, warning, judgment, God's wrath, personal sacrifice, self-denial, dying to self... The cross is an offense and a stumbling block to an unbelieving world. What these crowds want to do, they want to keep following Jesus, but they want to remove the shame of the cross. And when I say cross, I don't mean a necklace. A nice necklace that you put on your neck with sparkling diamonds or maybe made of gold. The cross, friends, was the instrument of torture. 
And so just because someone wears a cross, it is absolutely irrelevant to their actual embracing of the message of the cross or whether they truly are taking up their cross daily to truly follow Christ. And so the church today, I'm sorry to say, is full of crowds of churchgoers who would pale, okay? They will pale at the true words of Jesus. You have preachers and churches who are so afraid to offend, and so they rationalize and they seek to be winsome in order to win people. But the sacrifice they do is telling, failing to tell the truth in the process. And when someone comes to them and tells them the true gospel and the true harsh saying of scripture like here this morning, they become surprised. They don't like it. They're staggered when the truth is proclaimed to them and a truth that is considered unloving. And so is so is offended. So you got to tone it down. If we want to keep numbers up, friends, you got to tone it down. Now, I'm not suggesting you now should insult people, okay? But if you're not offending somebody, you are not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is offensive, no matter what. What appears offensive, by the way, becomes delightful tomorrow. Yes, today you might be offended, but through the Spirit, the sinner that opens his eyes to their sin and repents, turn away from their sin, and then, then he truly understands the mercy of God. Because friend, you cannot understand the mercy of God without His justice. God's love becomes cruel and no love at all without God's wrath, God's justice, and God's law. Calling sin out might be considered offensive in this culture in particular. But it is part of being a faithful person to the scripture, to the gospel. And now Jesus continues to address this crowd of fans. If what I'm saying is already a problem, then what will you Think when you see the Son of Man, first of all, die upon the cross. And then be ascended where He was in heaven. The crucified Messiah was the number one most preposterous idea for Jewish people. Remember, they wanted to make Jesus a king. They thought a Messiah was going to give us you know, this, this great king. Instead, here He goes and dies on the cross. What would you say then when you see me ascended where I was in heaven? If they are already staggered under the elementary truths and they cannot make sense of them as we saw last time, what will they do when harder truths of the passion of Christ, that the, the, the Messiah must be despised, rejected, betrayed, when there's no more miracles, when there's no more bread to be multiplied, when their Messiah dies on a pole? What will they do then? And what would there be reaction when they realize that you're following Jesus, you will face the same persecution? Will there be more complaints like here? If I die and leave you to yourself, what then? The implication of Jesus' question is that they should live now. Since the road ahead is paved with more and more sufferings. And it's not made, I was reminded by the scene of Pilgrim Progress, okay? Pilgrim has just started his journey. And there's a guy that wants to join him. His name is Pliable. And he hears about this celestial city. He's like, oh, I'm going to join with you. Let's go. Let's run. And the two of them fall in the swamp of despond. The first test of, of faith. And the two are sinking down. And now Pliable says, ah, oh, if this is the beginning, I'm going back. And he goes back. And then here comes help. Drags Pilgrim out of the swamp of despond. 
And he tells him, you know, it was good that Pliable went back. It's like, what? Is it good that he went back to the city of destruction? And he says, this, not, this journey is not made for the double-minded. It's not made for the wishy-washy. In other words, it is not a bad thing for a pliable person to go back to the world. Because this journey that leads to heaven is paved with suffering. See, these words must be interpreted as if Jesus is almost offering them an excuse they were looking for to just leave. In verse 66, the crowds now lose patience to that. There, guys, there, there's no more free food to satisfy our hunger. Let's get out of here and find some other teachers, okay? From that time on, verse 66 says, from that moment, which means as a direct result of the words of Jesus, and for the rest of the gospel, after two years of claiming to be followers of Christ, many, if not the entirety of His proclaimed disciples, went back. They left Him. Imagine that. Here stands Jesus, and all these crowds is just turning their back. And they're just going back to the world. The so-called Christians. So they were supposed to appear until this very point. But as we saw last time, they are not actually the chosen one. The, the election that we spoke about last time, they're proving that by the fact that they went back, they turned back, they withdrew, they quit following Jesus. They had promised initially to leave everything behind to, to follow Jesus, but now they're going back. They're going back to what they left behind the world. They're just backsliders. They return to their old unbelieving bodies and former lifestyle void of any true Christianity. They walk no more with Jesus. They no longer goes about to follow a company. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus now. That word from Jesus was enough for them. So they deserted him. They say, bye bye Jesus, I'm going. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Because you see, to walk with someone is to be associated with them. And you know that if you're associated with this guy, you're going to face a lot of attacks. And they don't want to have anything with, to do with that. They don't want to be near with, with the real Jesus. No more of this harsh message to our itchy ears. Friends, this is a startling change in the gospel. I was reminded of Spurgeon who was... At the height of his popularity, and there was this, he was preaching in this huge uh, uh, building and s full of people. And somebody, co somebody comes in and, f and, and falsely starts shouting, Oh, there's a fire in the room. And so everyone leaves, and one climbing off top of each other, they panic, and, and people die. And the next day, the newspaper come, they maligned Spurgeon, they, they told all sorts of things of him. And, and yeah, it was a thing that really brought him to a testing. But the point is this, as Billy Sunday once said, the backslider likes the preaching that wouldn't hit the side of a house. While the real disciple is delighted when the truth brings him to his knees. Allow me for a moment to preach to myself here, okay? What happens here appears at all effects in our North America mindset as a ministry failure. People are leaving church in droves. They reject the Jesus they once professed. I mean, this might be the nightmare to many pastors here in the U.S., I'm sure. Instead, let it be a lesson for all of us. I mean, I know groups of people in the past left this church for various reasons, just like here in our text. 
But friends, just because they call themselves Christians at one time in their life, it did not mean they actually were real, genuine, converted Christians who demonstrated to be true followers. How do they demonstrate to be true followers? By counting the cost of following Christ. Like the crowds here, where they were just fans, okay? It was nice and easy for them to, to believe in, in Jesus when it was culturally acceptable to come to church and, and you actually get a, a social badge. It's convenient. And they appear for a while to follow Jesus. But eventually, they turn away from following Him. And they prove without the shadow of a doubt that they are not true disciples. And let me warn you, we live in a current period in, 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 in our Day and age where professing Christians are apostatizing in drove. There is something that scripture warns us will happen before the end. And scripture doesn't leave us to the dark to the reason why. John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote a letter. 1 John 2.19. And he says this in his local church that he's writing. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Imagine that. If Jesus was a pastor in the 21st century America, might as well end his mission right here. However, the shocking behavior that he displays is counterintuitive. It is actually okay with him that all these crowds leave. It is actually okay to him that the rich young man ruler gets out once Jesus puts him to the idol of his heart. And that guy loves money before Jesus and he leaves. And it is okay for Jesus. And the reason why, once again, we saw last week, verse 66, uh, 63 to 65, sorry, is because they are not chosen. We already seen this last week, so we'll go fast. To frame the offense and stumble toward the gospel, Jesus comments again and says, It is the Spirit that gives life. And the, the flesh profits nothing. Let me explain to you what that means. The Holy Spirit gives eternal life. However, if the Spirit doesn't open your eyes, truly open your eyes to the truth, all your effort to manufacture yourself as a Christian will be completely pointless. On the contrary, you see that the flesh, flesh is the opposite of the Spirit, okay? It's your human nature, it's, it's your willpower, your muscle. You are not born again, but you are born only once. You're still unconverted. You seek God through physical means, personal pedigrees, your good works, your, uh, your claim to an outward symbol of Christianity, such as, you know, being a member of a church or a baptism. Instead of having the Holy Spirit, you're still in the flesh. You're still in the flesh. And Jesus says here, the flesh profits nothing. It is of no avail. It's of no help at all. It counts for nothing. In other words, just as we already saw multiple times in John, human reasoning, your effort, your power, have nothing to offer when it comes to understand the gospel. It is of no use. When it comes to spiritual matters, our carnal, earthly minds conveys no benefit whatsoever. The natural man cannot receive this gift of spiritual life. It has to be granted by the Holy Spirit. Illumination. These words, Jesus continues. The words that I'm speaking to you. The word of God is spirit and life. But you see, they are spirit and life for those who can perceive them through the Holy Spirit. Not these crowds. 
not these crowds, who are puzzled by all these things and they say, this is too hard for me to digest. And verse 64, verse 4, verse 64 says, but, Jesus continue, despite my, my message gives life, the problem here is another. Some of you do not believe. Some of you do not believe. In this case, most of his crowd that is about to leave him, Jesus knows they're not believers. They're not currently believing. This is a sad, sad statement, okay? They claim to be Jesus' followers and disciples. They followed him for two years by now. They, they've been professing Christians, okay? They have, however, no true faith. Some uh, translation may add, they do not believe me. And the point there is, in other words, they fail to rely and trust and believe and truly bow down to Jesus and follow Him as Lord. For who He is, no matter the cost, no matter what happens next, no matter how harsh and demanding His word might become over my life. What they're doing actually is they're resisting Obeying the word of God. And they're refusing to have any part on this hard saying of Christ. They were unwilling to risk themselves with Jesus at this level of sacrifice. And John explains the reason again. They, that Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe. He's like a prophet. But more, more than a prophet, he, by virtue of his divine nature, he foresees what will happen next. He knows the end from the beginning. Not only those who do not believe, but those who will betray him. And this is referring, as the next verses will say, to Judas, his chariot. And what that tells you is that it's not just the fake fans in the crowd, but even down to the nitty grit of the twelve who join until the end, who will have the supper with Christ. We have a conspirator, we have a deceiver. A turncoat, a backstabber who is not a believer. That's how deep it gets. Verse 65, Jesus says, Therefore I have said, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. He repeats again what we said last time in connection to why they cannot embrace the message of Jesus. They are not among the true elect, the true sheep of Christ. No one. And come to me unless it is granted, permitted, and allowed by the Heavenly Father. Yes, the call might go out to them. The preaching may go out to them. The miracle may go out to them. But they are not among the few really chosen. So they simply cannot believe. Because it has not been granted to them by the will of the Father. And rather than getting mad or sad... Or perhaps think, oh, if only I would have been more persuasive. We must submit, friends. We must rest to the reality that when people reject Christ, it's actually because of the Father's will. And we submit to that. The condition for God's word to actually give you eternal life is in faith. Not in any human effort on your carnal and unregenerate part. But the question is this, are you able to bear the harsh truth? They might be harsh truth, but they're still truth. If true faith is lacking, everything else you do does not matter before God. 
Whether you think you're a good person because you come to church, whether you claim to follow Jesus, you seek to have a good reputation in the community, what have you. There are, friends, many professing Christians in this country who believe not. Just like these crowds, they wandered after Jesus from place to place. They cheered Him up. They tasted the bread He multiplied. They wanted to make Him king. Now, you look at all that for two years. You would have thought they knew Christ. But now they turn their back on Him. They shake the dust out of their sandals. They go heads low back to the world. What is it that they lack? What is it? True faith in Christ. Yes, they had followed Jesus, but for reason other than Jesus Himself. It is impossible to be a disciple of Christ only for a season. That's why those who claim, friends, a difference between a disciple and a believer. I know this has been a heresy. I want to call it that. that spread in, in uh, evangelicalism. The, the denial of the Lordship salvation. That you can actually come to Jesus as Savior, but you don't come to Him as Lord. That, that, is, that is false teaching. They're committing a gross error. The, the so-called idea of a carnal Christian. That you can be a carnal Christian, but your life doesn't show any fruits. And that, friends, is a paradox. It's impossible. You cannot deceive Christ. They, yes, they may creep in unnoticed in churches. And Jesus, however, knows all about them. It is impossible to go on long before you are found out by your true fruits. By their fruits shall, shall you know them. That you either seriously and turned truly from sin, truly repent, wholly place your faith in Jesus, and you follow Him until heaven, or you don't. If that's the case, Jesus says, you're just a facade. There's no middle ground, friends. There's no option three. There's no gray area. Yes, you can claim to be a, a disciple of Christ. Even one of the inner circle, look at that, like Judas Iscariot. And you still can be lost. You still can have no true faith. But let's now move from this first part. Let's now look to, take a look to those who are few, very few, but instead they stick with Jesus. They don't go back to the world. What do they do? They follow forward with Christ. That is the beauty of our text. Verse 67 to the end of our text, the end of chapter 6. And what we see there is that true followers, here's the difference, they stay. They stay with Jesus. Why? Because they realize who Jesus is. And mostly, they realize His life-giving word. How life-giving the word of God is. And this is a beautiful confession of Peter right there, verse 67. But before we get there, notice again, chiefly, the reaction of Jesus. He doesn't say, he has lost the crowd, okay? That, that is a big... Sting to his reputation, you could think, right? He says, oh, he doesn't go there and says, whoa, wait, 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 heaven. hold on, everyone. Let me explain what I meant. Please don't go. Can I call you later and plead with you to come back? I'm sorry if I offended you. Oh, we got to do something. Maybe I can adjust my message. I know that my membership dropped, and, and with, with the membership, my donations will drop. No, he's unlike all of our evangelical entourage today. He does none of that. And that, friends, is screaming at you that Jesus' response shows that he does not care he lost the crowd. Why he doesn't care? Because he's not looking for fans. He's looking for true followers. 
because his true sheep hear his voice and follow him. So if they don't do that, they're simply not part of the flock. They are goats, not true sheep of the Lord. How should, therefore, we should respond to those who struggle with hard saying in Scripture? Now, don't get me wrong, okay? There is a type of person who is a genuine person who is searching, struggling, needs to mature, and we need to be leading and searching out to them and, and, and sharing with them. Absolutely. But here the thing is different with this crowd, okay? They followed Jesus two years. It's clear that they are motivated by unbelief. And the answer of Jesus is not to chase after them with candies or empty promises. To somehow entertain them. And to make them come back to church. No, he moves on. He let them go. And what is the cause of great discouragements among pastors and churches in North America? They feel like their ministry is a failure because their church was emptied instead of growing. But Jesus is not bothered a bit. And let me explore with you the two reasons he's not bothered. The first that we saw from this text is that he's aware of the goodness of election. And the second thing that he's aware is that he's seeing things through the perspective of the kingdom of God. The true kingdom of God. The first thing is that he meditates on election. And for us, meditating on election can become a comfort, okay? When you feel alone in the narrow path. And just as Jesus is not discouraged or surprised from the rejection, it's because he knows the heart of all people. So me and you should rest in the fact that God knows best. But also the second dimension here, which is a reality check for, for us, is that big numbers don't equate true kingdom impact. That dismantles right there the, the, the idolatry of evangelicalism today. You think you got a big church. Oh, I'm doing great kingdom impact. I'm telling you in the kingdom of God, there might be people who have like a, a small group and something. And, and they might do more kingdom impact than those these packed churches. And we must therefore focus on the quality, not on the quality and uh, quantity. Let me quote to you what Lloyd -Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones said uh, once. He said, before God can fill a church, he has to empty it first. And the greatest example of this quote is, when I was at Master Seminary, I was uh, li listening to the lecture of Steve Lawson. He was essentially uh, recollecting to us his first years of ministry. He was in a Baptist church, and he was preaching about regeneration week after week, week after week. And it's like these people were nominal Christians started to get out of church and to the point that finally they kicked him out. Lawson got kicked out. But again, before God can fill a church, he has to empty it. And that is the lesson for us, that it's not what it looks like. Okay, it's not what it looks like. Let's continue. Not only Jesus is not bothered by the massive dropout of these crowds. I mean, he lost almost all his disciples here, okay? But he, he doubles down. He doubles down. He turns toward the 12 that are left in embarrassment right now. They're remaining there and standing. And he's telling them, think seriously if you want to continue with me. He says to them, do you also want to go away? You don't want to leave. The question here implies some uncertainty about their response. Focus is not whether they will leave, but whether they ought to leave at this point. And this, obviously, from the Savior, expects a negative answer. That's why some of your translation may say, Don't you? Do you? 
You don't want to go away, do you? It's, it's a test. We already saw this test throughout the gospel, didn't we? That uh, there is a big reality check now. It's time for the disciple to be tested in their loyalty to Jesus. What about you? You would too desire to leave me? This is your chance to leave me, okay? Notice first how Jesus doesn't need me and you. And notice also how Jesus is resolute, determined to accomplish his sacrificial mission without any adjustment to defeat our expectations. It ultimately means that he will be rejected. It ultimately means that he will be flogged. It ultimately means that your Savior will die on the cross for your sin. Regardless, even what the closest people do around him. And later, in fact, we know that when Jesus is arrested, the twelve will leave him. That tells you even uh, true believers, okay, are weak believers at best. They will even uh, them at times fail to keep their words. But here at least for now, the disciples, in complete and sharp contrast with the crowds, here's their response. And their response shows a very different world of priorities in the true believers. Simon Peters, he's the spokesman. He breaks, breaks the silence on behalf of the twelve and he confesses with these marvelous, famous words. He says, Master, Lord, to whom shall we go? Not only Peter has nowhere else to go, but he's telling his Savior that he desires to go nowhere else but at the feet of his Savior. Jack Hiles once said, I would rather die in the will of God than to live outside of it. Doesn't this remind you of Ruth? We looked at the profession of faith and she clinged to Naomi, remember, in the evening service. Uh, by the way, please come tonight. We are con beginning a series on Jonah tonight. But here he says, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? Then now this is significant. Now the, cro the crowds of fake followers, what did they look for? They looked for miracles. They looked for signs and bread. They looked for a king to kick out the Romans. But here you have Peter. Here you have the eleven. And they're looking for what? The word of God. They're looking for Jesus as a person. And they desire to fellowship above all with Jesus, even at the cost of their own life, even at the cost of their sacrifice, no matter the cost of following Him. That's what they desire. The true, lasting words that are leading them to eternal life. The implication is that Peter and the eleventh, unlike the crowds, and unlike Judas Iscariot, understood the truth. That Jesus alone has such message able to give eternal life. And that's what matters the most. Let me put to you in these words. It's like you say this. Jesus, you can strip me of everything. You can take away my hobbies. You can take away my interests. You can take away my car. You can take away my money. You can take my house away, my job, my spouse, my children, my entire family, my friends. You can put me to jail. You can lead me to a black future. And even, yes, you can take my own life. But I still have your word and Jesus is mine. I got nowhere else to go from the feet of Jesus. I don't want to go anywhere else but His words. 
nor I desire to go anywhere else than Christ and his word. The key ingredient of a true disciple is not only that you claim to believe in Jesus, otherwise everyone in North America will be a Christian. And if you believe that, you are living in la-la land, not in, in the reality of where we are. The key here is that you continue to follow even when the bar becomes high. That's because you have truly counted the cost of following Christ. And you are willing to take it all in. And yes, a true disciple may wonder at times. But friends, a true disciple will not turn from following Jesus altogether. Can you say the same thing and actually mean the words that Peter says in this text? The, tr- the difference between true and fake Christianity, friends, is in this confession of Peter. That the Bible and Jesus gave me true life. And I, stuck, I stick to that word. I stick to Jesus Christ with all my affections, with all my desires. And I actually obey that word. That if a person claims to follow Jesus but goes everywhere else to seek life except to Jesus and his word... He has not truly internalized the confession of Peter that we see here. That no matter even if you claim outward allegiance to Christ, you don't have that. But it, it continues that confession. Verse 69. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. There's another deep reason that I cannot leave. Peter expresses this in a com- the completion of all his time. He has observed Jesus in the past two years. And he has learned... And he has become sure of something. Here's what he has. That you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Now some of your translation may say the holy one of God. And that is because some of the older manuscripts. They, they use that. But note that the other gospel says the son of the living God. And so both of them might have been in that conversation. The point being he has come from God. He is the Messiah. And He's the sent one. And Jesus is pleased by this confession of faith. In verse 70, he says, you guys passed the test. He says, did I not choose you? It's like you are a father and your son does something good. And you says, that's my boy. Right there. And uh, the focus again is that Jesus picked the disciples. It wasn't the other way around that they chose Jesus. The emphasis again is election. He chose the 12. So the response of Jesus Shows that he affirms their genuine profession of faith. Their heart is in the right place. At least the 11. The second part of verse 70. Qualifies that even among the 11. Uh, there's a t- the, 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 the 12th one. Judas is not the case. But again. Here you see what true assurance of faith looks like. Here you see what, what, what does it mean to actually know. For sure that you are saved. The first thing you see is the word of God. That all of your assurance is in the word of life. In the promises of God. But also in the evidence of God's grace in your life. That now your, your, your world of priority has been completely shifted. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit testified with your spirit that you are children of God. Yes, at times you may face doubt. Yes, at times you may feel guilt and fear. Sometimes even your sin can eat away your assurance. Uh, you think about Peter later on. He, he will betray the Savior, okay? We could even fear to be forsaken, just like Peter. Shaken. Everyone lives his master. But he clings to the Savior. He has nowhere else to go. Realizes Jesus change. 
Jesus changed his life. Yeah, he, he, there's nowhere else I want to go. And therefore, he trusts in Jesus and his promise and his word. Because he has come to know and believe the truth. Therefore, he has assurance that God chose him. So, friends, let be, this be an aid to, to you as a struggling believer in your various level of confidence. But however, there's the warning of the ending of our text. The pretension of Judas Iscariot. And we must speak of this. That Jesus doesn't end of the, I chose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil. Yes, Jesus chose Judas Iscariot too. But for a whole different purpose than the others. And the purpose, friends, is damnation. Is reprobation. That even among the elects, there's still a reprobate. Just like between Esau and J Jacob. And, and as a reprobate, as a, as a devil, as it described here, it's a very bad one at that. That is described as the devil or a devil. That figuratively behind Judas' action is Satan. Satan is at work here. That Judas come from the evil one. That's what Jesus is saying. And just like Satan, Judas is a false accuser. Testifying falsely about Jesus. And one who helps himself, we see other parts of the, the gospel, from the offering plate. One who bypasses God's word to selfishly gain something for himself. To the point of betraying the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Nicole Rishi said this, It's hard to tell who has your back from who has it long enough to just stab you on your back. Okay, that's the reality of Judas Iscariot. Starling thing, however, I want to notice. Jesus knows all these things about Judas Iscariot. And yet he allows him for three years to be his disciple. He, he, you know, Judas Iscariot, just like the 11th, he watched, he heard sermons from Jesus. Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, knowing that he was a devil. He had him dip his bread at the table. And despite he knows one day he will betray him, he allows him to be in the inner circle. Now this, this doesn't mean that now we should allow as a church a lying thief under our watch. But there is a lesson for us at times. To be careful as much as possible or not. I feel like destroying the, the, the wheat because of the tares. That Jesus who has the ultimate knowledge that we ourselves don't have. Allows this ultimately for a different purpose. Even evil in the church. Even extremely wicked people dressed as sheep. They cause damage. And I'm, I'm telling you this doesn't undermine that they will give an account to God. For their wicked schemes. Okay. Jesus will later declare this about Judas Iscariot. It would have been better for that man. He would not have been born at all. And remember and ponder the end of Judas Iscariot's life. How does he die? He hangs himself. And his body smashes with little pieces in the process. That's where, that's where betraying the Savior leads. But it is significant nevertheless. They can still serve under the sovereignty of God. To accomplish a good plan. The death of Christ. That he will give an account for his action. But the, that ultimately Satan with all his scheme is only... He cannot frustrate God's plan. And how does our text end? Verse 71. Now John, remember, writes this gospel at the end of the story. He knows that 
Jesus will die. He knows what will happen. He knows the end of the story. And he says, Jude, he was speaking, Jesus was speaking about Judas Iscariot. That Judas, in all his self-deception, perhaps at this point has no clue Jesus is speaking of him. Later, at the Last Supper, he undeniably knows. I mean, at that time, he's already, he already took the money in. And he's about to do what he's supposed to. However, unlike the others, his name is Son of Simon. Unlike the 11th, there's a significant that he's not from Galilee. That unlike the other disciples, he's not a fisherman. He's not a tax collector. He's not other kind of people. No, he is actually a learned Jew. He has contact with people high in the religious ladder of his days. However, he remains the devil's culprit. He represents what the unbelieving Jews are at this point, okay? Those who claim to be the Israel of God, Judah, <laughs> the, the tribe of Judah. Man, they sold their Savior for 30 pieces of silver. They sold the Messiah. Especially the religious leaders of Jesus' day who will betray Him. Have you ever played that game, Mafia? And then you, with the cards, and you find out who is actually the, the murderer. This is, this is the moment here. This is the first time that J Judas appears in the Gospel of John. He's already identified for what he is. The betrayer of Jesus. And it points to us to the fact again, in the overall context of this, okay? That it's not just the crowds. Even among the closest followers to Jesus, let alone the crowds of the fans... You still have one who not only doesn't truly believe, not only is not a true follower of Jesus Christ, but he's actually a messenger from Satan to harm the true sheep of the Lord. May God protect us from such individuals. So how do we conclude today, friends? I'm telling you, we are come here after this sermon on last Sunday. We are now at a crossroad outside the church there's one sign that says, you know, Jesus. The other sign says to you, go back to the world. One is the narrow way. There's a narrow gate. And there's a narrow path that follows. And Jesus says, there's only few. Few. Few that find it. And uh, the other one is a very broad road. That so many people, even self-professing Christians, are under that road. They, however, don't realize that that road leads to destruction. Many, many, countless crowds are those that will end up there. And now you have Jesus. He's coming on the edge of the crossroad. And yes, He's inviting people to come. He's inviting you to come. However, there's chaos. There's confusion. And, and, and in this chaos, you fail to take the heed. Perhaps your conscience is pricked a bit. And you say, yes, I must go to that narrow path. But I'm going to try to climb it a different way. And you resist the drive. And the flood of the world continues to drag you forward toward where you were in the, in the, in the broad road. And, and you go back. And to you, that tiny hard road makes no sense at all. So you go back and conform to the masses. Is that you? Friends, this is a moment of truth, okay? May all of us at Theta, I pray we will be remind ourselves when, when it gets rough, okay? That the preaching of the word always leads to a sifting of the hearts in the listeners. 
And in this story right here, this is a critical moment. You have thousands of false disciples that walk away from Jesus. And the reason is it got too difficult. It wasn't what they signed up for. Friends, if they were true disciples, they would have sticked around to discover what Jesus truly meant. Their problem and our problem too, that we make sure our primary motives to put our faith in Christ are spiritual. Not as we saw last week's material. And the same question Jesus asked to Peter, Peter is asking to you and me now. What are you going to do next? As you see other people leaving, are you going to leave or are you going to cleave? And even as you cleave, will you cleave for the right reason? Or like Judas, for sinister motives? And friends, if that, that is the case, that will make our judgment in the end worse than the crowds. Here's how to determine whether you truly are following Jesus. You love Him. Not just the things He gives. You desire Him. Not just His works and miracles. And you follow Him, not only when it's nice and easy, but precisely when you lose everything. Precisely when He calls you to sacrifice everything you love. Think about the thing you love the most, and you lay it on the altar. And you say, Lord, You are everything to me. This is not mine. There's only two options, however. Only two options available. The greatest mistake of this crowd is, is to think that there is a third option. A third road. That yes, I can be a, a nominal Christian. That I can actually be in the middle. That God can accept my gray area. You can be a Christian without trusting in the cross. You can be a Christian without forsaking behind your sin. You can be a Christian without bearing the cross and following Him through the thick and thin. These fans will find out before God, to their greater surprise, that they were no Christians to begin with. And now, now it's too late. They will face the judgment worse than unbelievers. Because unbelievers don't make that, that claim. And so I plead with you, count the cost now before it's too late. Choose this day whom you will serve. Pick your lane now before it's too late. And as you do that, just as like a story teaches us, you realize this, that it takes a true follower to realize what a fake one is. Let us pray.